Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eat Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, a Senior Managing Director in FTI Consulting's Forensic and Litigation Consulting Practice, where I assist clients in their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. Thank you for listening. In this episode, we're going to examine the often opaque, secretive world of fine art. On July 27, 2020, the U.S. Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations released a report entitled, The Art Industry and U.S. Policies that Undermine Sanction. The result of a two-year investigation into the unregulated art industry and how billions of dollars, much of it of unknown origin, is used to purchase fine art. This Senate investigation apparently came about when it was learned that several ultra-high net worth individuals who had been blacklisted by the Office of Foreign Assets Control were still able to purchase multi-million dollar works of art from sellers based in the United States in contravention of U.S. law. This came on the heels of a worldwide effort to create national registries of beneficial owners of legal entities across the world. Joining me today is Cobri and Kim partner, Rob Rathmel, who helps to direct the firm's international private client practice and specializes in providing offensive, counter-offensive and defensive strategies for high net worth individuals and institutions in international litigation involving allegations of fraud, money laundering, sanctions, violations, and other forms of misconduct. Welcome, Rob. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Scott. Happy to be here. So, Rob, many high net worth individuals employ complex tax strategies to lawfully preserve their wealth and limit their income tax liability. And to do so, many of them utilize offshore trusts, private investment companies, and other legal entities in tax-friendly international jurisdictions. Unfortunately, those same vehicles are utilized by transnational criminals, kleptocrats, and narco-traffickers. The Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers, the Russian laundromat case have led to an international push to create registries of beneficial owners of offshore companies. What strategies should high net worth individuals employ to avoid being lumped together with Yakuza crime bosses and kleptocrats in the aftermath of the next Panama Papers scandal? Yeah, so that's a great question, Scott. And of course, we live in a time where any extreme wealth creates suspicion. And so in my experience, the strongest defense for a high net worth individual who is concerned about being uh, lumped together with the type of people to whom you're referring, is to take the proactive step of working with their legal counsel and other advisors to undertake what we call in our practice a clean funds analysis, or CFA. Essentially, this clean funds analysis involves examining and compiling key financial documentation and related materials, bank statements, purchase and sale contracts, corporate agreements, etc., with the ultimate objective of preparing a narrative that demonstrates that the funds or assets held by the high net worth individual are clean and unrelated to any illicit conduct or criminal enterprises. That serves two purposes. The first is to enable high net worth individuals to structure their assets in the way they want, because of course, service providers who are helping them structure those assets want proof that the funds are clean because they have their own obligations to check that. So the clean funds analysis can be used for that. And second, of course, in the event that any allegations are made against the high net worth individual, whether those allegations are made in the media or by a disgruntled counterpart in commercial litigation, or in the worst case scenario, by a government authority, having a clean funds analysis in existence already 
is a very useful defensive tool because it allows the high net worth individual to get out in front of any such allegation and, if you like, de-lump themselves once they've been lumped together by those people. That's a really interesting approach. And having been involved in a few projects where we had to retroactively demonstrate the legitimacy of funds, always better to do that type of thing up front because you're not at the same disadvantage that you are when you're having to do it after the fact. So the Senate investigation focused somewhat narrowly on a number of OFAC specially designated nationals who were able to make these uh, multi-million dollar purchases of fine art in the U.S. in the months following their having been blacklisted. And while art auctions and private art collectors have no obligations to have anti-money laundering controls or systems in place, all U.S. persons and legal entities are prohibited from transacting with OFAC-listed persons or entities. How do private collectors and auction houses operate transparently, and is it even possible? So presently, the United States is a little bit behind the curve when it comes to legislating and enforcing anti-money laundering controls and other obligations for art auctions, auction houses, private collectors and antiquities dealers beyond simply prohibiting them from transacting with persons or entities on SDN lists. And the reason I say a little bit behind the curve is if we look in comparison, the UK has already started more closely regulating the art market in an effort to ensure that its participants are operating with greater transparency. So uh, at the beginning of this year, for instance, the UK formally implemented the various provisions of the EU's fifth anti-money laundering directive, which was uh, previously developed by the EU in response to terrorist attacks and also the 2016 Panama Papers leaks. And those leaks revealed that various bad actors had used alternative financial systems, such as the art market, to circumvent existing KYC and AML controls in the banking industry. So as part of the new legislation in the UK, any firms or sole practitioners in the UK who, by way of business, trade in or act as an intermediary in the sale or purchase of works of art over a threshold of £10,000 are now required to have certain KYC and transparency-related controls in place, including, and these will be very familiar for people in, in the banking and traditional finance sectors, undertaking an internal risk assessment and creating an internal AML policy, undertaking initial and ongoing due diligence reviews, and maintaining fulsome records of these due diligence materials and finally, appointing a nominated officer to make regular reports to the National Crime Agency. So you see in the UK and indeed in the EU, there is now formal legislation bringing the art world into line with the finance world. Now, to be clear, the United States does appear to be taking some steps to catch up and implement similar KYC and AML control regulations. So Congress is currently considering the Illicit Art and Antiquities Trafficking Prevention Act, and that would require dealers in art and antiquities to conduct initial and ongoing due diligence reviews of clients, establish internal AML programs, maintain records of any cash programs, and report suspicious activity and transactions exceeding $10,000 to federal regulators. But until that legislation is actually enacted, 
there is no formal requirements on auction houses and art dealers, but our advice to them and to anyone dealing with them is effectively to self-regulate and, and do the same thing until the legislation is in place. And therefore, conducting a proactive clean funds analysis and KYC diligence will ensure that they're mitigating the risks of assisting in financial crime and also demonstrating transparency. The reason that is important beyond the obvious, which is no one wants to be involved in crime, is because just because there is no law requiring to do them to do that at the moment, Scott, if they fail to do so in such a way that it could be said that they were willfully blind to transactions involving dirty money or criminal conduct, then they can still be liable. So our advice is always to adopt a position as if you were fully regulated, even if you don't come within the technical ambit of existing regulation. That's a really good point you make, that last point of the whole willful blindness thing. And the fact that you know, just because the industry isn't subject to industry regulation doesn't mean their involvement in illicit transactions wouldn't give rise to liability. I think that's a really important point that you made right there. Thank you. So the Senate report cited a study of art sales and estimated that the U.S. market for art sales in 2019 was $28.3 billion, representing 44% of worldwide sales. What steps should private buyers and sellers be making to vet the other parties to a transaction? I know you touched upon some of them. Anything else come to mind? Sure. So look, in the first instance, as we've already discussed, private buyers and sellers should conduct their own due diligence by checking global compliance databases. And I know you're familiar with these, uh, Scott, of course, but anyone who's not, they are very easy to access, uh, particularly if you're in a business, you know, the cost is definitely worth it. And they produce reports on individuals. So private buyers and sellers should access these databases to determine whether the other party is directly connected to or affiliated with sanctions and other enforcement action. And if there are any other red flags that don't necessarily show up in these reports, then of course, the private buyers and sellers should be careful not to ignore these red flags because of the willful blindness question. So red flags would include a large or exclusively cash element to the purchase. Red flags would include the use of multiple nominee companies without a good or obvious tax reason to do so. Other red flags might include the use of intermediaries when those intermediaries aren't clearly already involved in the art world business. And finally, red flags might emerge from the mere fact of someone doing business out of somewhere in the world where typically you wouldn't expect these transactions to take place. Now, none of the red flags is a reason not to proceed with the transaction, but it is a reason why you might conduct further due diligence. And at that point, bring in someone like you, Scott, to conduct a more fulsome report before proceeding with a a multi-million dollar transaction. What steps have international regulators taken to increase the transparency high net worth individuals must provide in high value transactions? I think, you know, in addition to what we've already discussed in in relation to the art world, the international regulation on all financial transactions has really in the last 20 years become a a growth industry, if you like, of international regulation. And it started in the 80s, actually, with narco trafficking and things like that. And then injecting the horrific terrorist incidents of September 11th and, and related incidents gave, if you like, political motivation 
to speed up those efforts. And in, I think in a very good development, financial criminals and financial crime was sort of swept up in the wave of legislation dealing with terrorist financing. And then so over the last 19 years, I guess, You've seen uh, international regulation is really a growth industry. You've seen registers of beneficial ownership that have come up. You've seen legislation around the world preventing people from masking who the true owners are. You've seen legislation coming up preventing or requiring companies dealing with people to ascertain who the true owners are. And you've seen a lot of compliance with that. So I think we're in, a, we're in a time where there is a growth industry, but I think the, and the reason why this podcast is such an excellent topic is because what you really have going on at the moment is an arms race, in effect, between financial criminals and global regulators and, and, and individual national regulators as well. And every time a new piece of legislation or regulation comes in, financial criminals find a way to circumvent it. So, you know, it's much harder for them these days to stash money in offshore bank accounts with nominee companies. So what do they do instead? They start using high value pieces of property like, like art, and art is a perfect medium for that. And now, as we've discussed, clamping down on that, but I'm sure that they'll think of something next and the, the arms race will, will continue. Yes, it makes me nostalgic for the days where surveillance picked up people carrying duffel bags of cash. It was a lot easier right. to establish. Right. <laughs> a lot easier when it, when, it was a, when it was a sort of Cessna flying into a, an airport in South Florida with drugs and money. Yes, yes. It's strange that I would be uh, nostalgic for those days. So, um, no, that's, um, no, those are really, uh, really good points. And I, and I like the, the way you characterize it as an arms race, because I think that's a very fitting way of, of describing it. You know, that's, that's true of so much of you know, the you know, regulatory efforts. They are always in step with the, the current exploits, but they make it harder. So in investigating the violation of uh, anti-bribery statutes, bribes are often paid by intermediaries in an effort to put some distance between the, the bribe payer and the corrupt foreign official who's the bribe recipient. Intermediaries in the art world, in some instances, are the only parties that know the identities of buyer and seller, and the discretion and confidentiality seem to be the main reason for their existence. How do collectors avoid future liability in an art transaction gone wrong? Do they refuse to work through art advisors and intermediaries or what's the best approach? Yeah, so we've seen the Department of Justice and, and other international authorities expand the scope of money laundering investigations to target financial advisors and intermediaries of, of high net worth individuals. And this includes private wealth managers, banking representatives, asset trustees, and, and other third parties that would, of course, catch uh, intermediaries in high-value art sales like this. And the AML regulations that have been enacted and are otherwise being legislated concerning the art world will, will operate no differently. So as I said, the legislation in the UK and the EU has expanded the rules effectively to cover art dealers in the exact same way as uh, traditional financial services providers, as will the legislation that is on the books in the US. I will say a word in favor of, uh, of, of intermediaries, though, that the, the mere fact that these regulations exist doesn't mean that collectors have to avoid working through intermediaries. I appreciate there are, in addition to confidentiality, often excellent commercial reasons why intermediaries in, in high value transactions unlock opportunities, you know, just like a realtor really does for, for those of us who operate in the, in the non-high net worth world. So... 
the mere existence doesn't mean that all intermediaries should be scrapped. All it means is that you need to be extra careful because by definition, when you're dealing with an intermediary, you're not dealing with the principal. All that means is you need to make sure you know who the intermediary is working for and you don't just accept the intermediary's word for it. You're able to conduct your own due diligence on it. But subject to that, I think that the, the commercial art world and, and private dealing can continue in its essentially the same form, just with this extra layer of protection. No, that's a really good point. There are so many legitimate reasons why intermediaries are essential parts of business transactions. You know, the overwhelming majority of them are actually, you know, sort of a very important and legitimate part of the stream of commerce. The challenge is rooting out those that are illegitimate. So some auction houses will accept a work of fine art as collateral and lend against it or provide loans to buyers in advance or advances to sellers. Does borrowing from an auction house pose potentially greater exposure to high net worth individuals than borrowing from a a traditional financial institution? So at the outset, it is very clear that the US and other governments are acutely aware that certain bad actors may be engaging in money laundering using the artwork acquired with illegal funds, illicit funds as collateral against clean loans. So, you know, we're talking about the arms race. That's definitely something that has taken place and is now very much on the radar of the DOJ and other authorities. However, in terms of weighing the risks, which I think is what your question was, between to a lawful high net worth individual, between borrowing from an auction house as opposed to a traditional financial institution, it's very important to consider that the established auction houses generally already conduct extensive KYC and due diligence prior to engaging in transactions. So there's not that much difference, or there ought not to be that much difference these days in terms of the checks that a prospective borrower will will go through, whether they're dealing with a major bank or a major auction house. And again, kind of like the intermediaries point, Scott, there are excellent commercial reasons why these types of loans can be raised on this non-traditional collateral and why it's growing. And provided everyone is aware and and sort of treats these like the mature financial products they are and follows the same due diligence and KYC processes, I wouldn't regard it as high risk, no. Now, if you're dealing with a smaller auction house that doesn't have an international reputation to protect and isn't based in one of the main art markets, then yes, it is a higher risk thing. But so obviously we assess everything on a case-by-case basis, but I, I don't detect anything inherently suspicious about uh, these types of financial transactions, provided all the other compliance requirements have been met. Well, and then add to that, they're probably much more astute in determining the value of the collateral. You know, the typical sort of financial institution may not have the requisite expertise to authenticate a work of fine art and, and appraise its value. That's absolutely right. That's one of the main reasons why it's a viable financial market for the exact reason you give. So despite that, the art world seems to be facing some headwinds in the US in particular. Does that mean more art will likely change hands privately and be listed for sale in non-US auction houses or both of those? I mean, should US auction houses offer to self-regulate or will that just hasten the market to shift to less onerous jurisdictions? So another great question, and and my perspective has always been that self-regulation in advance of, as you say, the catch-up that takes place before more regulation 
is the better option for stakeholders in the art industry, including, or perhaps especially, auction houses in the United States, because establishing those voluntary standards of diligence and compliance would first demonstrate to the DOJ that the professionals in this industry are actively seeking to prevent money laundering, and second, provide the opportunity for the actual stakeholders to more capably cater and define the regulatory standards to what they know suits their industry best, instead of being immediately tied to standards imposed by parties outside of and potentially ignorant to how the industry operates. And to some degree, we've already seen efforts to self-regulate, such as through the AML recommendations drafted by the industry-supported not-for-profit organization called the Responsible Art Market. Now, the whole theme of our discussion today has really been that the art market in terms of regulation is likely to end up much like the banking market in terms of regulation. And there will be different tiers of participants if it follows the bank market based on what jurisdictions they operate in and how stringent their due diligence and KYC controls are. We've talked about how the borrowing from the major auction houses is already essentially the same as borrowing from the major banks. There will be secondary and tertiary tiers. And the further you go down the tiers, the more relaxed the KYC requirements are. And again, in some cases, that's legitimate because the transactions are smaller and KYC is proportionate to the threat of financial crime that it's trying to prevent. But there will be a shift. I do. I think it's inevitable that there will be a growing portion of art transactions conducted outside of the EU or the UK or the US as a result of tighter controls. That's very similar to how trusts and other financial products have have moved offshore. But at the end of the day, Scott, I think anyone who is listening to this podcast who advises legitimate high net worth individuals doesn't want to be involved in, in something that encourages financial crime anyway. And the overwhelming majority of people in the fine art industry will welcome these these types of controls. And I believe legitimate purchasers and sellers will welcome them as well, because there are ways of legitimately protecting confidentiality while still adhering to a strict KYC and AML regime. So I think that the majority of transactions that will be so-called lost from the UK, EU and US will be transactions we wouldn't want going through those jurisdictions anyway. No, that's a very good point. Driving the illicit transactions uh, further underground or offshore, that's not a, exactly a, a negative outcome. It becomes, becomes someone else's problem to regulate. Right. Uh, so Rob, this has been terrific. You've offered some great insights for me and for our listeners, and I really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. So that was Cobra and Kim partner, Rob Rathmel. This concludes this episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI Consulting's Risk and investigations practice. Stay tuned for the next episode of Fraud Eat Strategy when we'll speak with frontline anti-bribery CEO and compliance luminary, as well as former SHOT Show defendant, Richard Bistrong, on why we need compliance officers more than ever before. If you have a case, topic, or guest you'd like to hear about on a future episode, email us at fraudeatstrategy at fti.consulting.com. Thank you for listening.